Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 47, brought to you by acmescience.com. On today's episode, I am joined by Frank Morgan, the Atwell Professor of Mathematics at Williams College, and we talk about soap bubbles, the best way to run the bases, and how a math chat TV show will get you recognized at the grocery store. Here we go! Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components, back again after a hiatus that went on a bit Longer than I uh, had really intended it to. I am your host, uh, Samuel Hansen, and I am joined today by the Atwell Professor of Mathematics at Williams College, Frank Morgan. Professor Morgan, welcome to the Morning, show. Morning, Sam. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is a pretty good morning overall, isn't it? Well, we just had Mountain Day on Friday here at Williams College, where the president at 6 a.m. rings the bells, cancels all classes, and we go up into the mountains together. So we've been really appreciating this the nice fall weather we've had when it comes. Well, I, I, I to be honest, had not, not heard of this, but now I really wish I would have gone to Williams College, because that sounds fantastic. Well, it's a good time. There were a number of faculty, and there were just Hundreds and hundreds, maybe close to a thousand of us up on the mountains on Friday. Well, that it, it, I'm that is the greatest uh, college tradition I've heard of yet. And I have to tell you, I've sometimes gotten students started on mathematical research in conversations walking up and down those trails. <laughs> uh, that that is a skill. Uh, <laughs> all right, so. So I let's let's get into this interview before I, I completely spin out uh, trying to think of how great it would be to walk up a mountain right now. Uh, there's I found plenty of uh, information about you on the internet, and there's there's a lot of it uh, from your days at university and then afterwards. But there's uh, nothing that I really found that about what happened before. So I was wondering if I could ask you what. What drew you into the study of mathematics in the first place? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I guess the first thing I wanted to be was a train engineer. That appealed to me. Then I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, then an electrical engineer. And finally, around seventh grade, I, as I wandered around, I thought I liked math. And I never changed my mind again. And I think one of the things I like about math is that when you understand something, you feel like you've really understood it. Something that was a mystery before becomes clear, and that's very satisfying. The slow, the, it's slow going, but you feel like you're making some progress. Now, that, that's, that's very true, and you're not the first person I've talked to that's actually mentioned that progression from originally thinking about 
engineering and then finally into mathematics but you are i believe the first person who uh, made that transition so young uh <laughs> I, so once you, you mentioned truly being able to understand something in mathematics is was that really i mean the the key thing that this kind of idea in mathematics that uh, once you have something and you've proven it to be correct, it, it's always that way? Well, that's the ideal, but sometimes it takes a long time. You know, a lot of things, most, most questions in ma- most of mathematics is, complete, is a complete mystery. Nobody's been able to figure it out at all. And so we mathematicians are, uh, are like everyone else, finding mathematics baffling uh, and, and mysterious, uh, but you know we love it, and so we stick with it. And every once in a while, you figure something out, and what was complete darkness before becomes illuminated, and that's a lot of fun. Now, the research that you do is uh, primarily in an area of mathematics that known as a minimal surfaces. And so I was wondering what exactly about soap bubbles fascinates you so much? Oh, yeah, so soap bubbles. Well, what a perfect example of how mathematicians like to understand complicated things by looking at simple examples. So just about everything in the universe is trying to optimize something. You may be looking for the fastest route to work or how to maximize profits or physicists tell us that nature tries to minimize energy. And one of the simplest geometric mathematical examples of this is just a soap bubble, which is trying to minimize surface area or energy. And the least area way to enclose a given volume of air is the sphere, the round sphere. That's why soap bubbles are round. Soap bubbles have known this for a long time, apparently. But it was only proved in the last 150 years, mathematically. When you look at soap bubbles, uh, which I, I clearly you do, what... What do you see? What, what brought you into then, now that we know mathematically that the, the sphere is the best way uh, to enclose that air, what made you look at, say, more than one soap bubble? Right, so what would be the next, the next simplest question? And, you know, we're look, the idea is to look at simpler questions, uh, look at the simplest questions, go step by step, and try to learn the principles Because if you understand those principles, the same principles that govern the shape of the soap bubble govern the shape of the universe. So what would be the next step after a single bubble would be a double bubble. Now, that sounds kind of obvious, maybe, but no one had really asked that question. And so when when we started looking at that in the around, I guess it's now 20 years ago, some mathematicians said, oh, well, it, we see what soap bubbles do, and we know as a fact that that's the least area, least energy shape. And so I had some students working on some of these things and wanted them to write down some of these interesting results. And one of them, uh, this poor undergraduate, Joel Foisey here at Williams College, who was supposed to write up in his thesis this, this supposedly well-known theorem as we talked to the mathematicians around the world who knew how to prove it, 
turned out they didn't. And it was actually in Joel's undergraduate thesis that this first appeared as a mathematical conjecture, as an open question, and led to 20 years of work, lots of great stories, lots of advancements, lots of better understanding of mathematics, just thinking about the shape of a double soap bubble. What were some of those advancements in in mathematics that looking at this double bubble led to? Well, what did they... Well, first of all, what, so, so what are even the steps? How would you start to understand something like that? Well, the first case would be to just look at a flat, planar version of the problem. So now instead of something that's in... Instead of a double bubble that's enclosing two volumes in space, you'd look at a planar double bubble enclosing two areas on a piece of paper and look for the shortest, the least perimeter way of doing that. And it actually is just three circular arcs meeting at two points, giving you that double bubble shape in the plane. And that was the first theorem in this direction, and that was proved by this student, Joel Foisy, and some other students that he was working with over the summer under my direction. So that's that's how it all got started. I well... And that's that one you keep on talking about about students. And and this is something that seems to come up a lot when I was, you know, looking into having you on the show. And you have this small research program. You have an entire section on your website that is dedicated to the work you've done with students. And while you have done a lot of research yourself, I, I was wondering why there is uh, for you such a focus on, on this work with students? Well, you know, it's not enough for a couple people in the world to be understanding and doing mathematics. It's really something that needs to be available to everybody. I mean, wouldn't it be a terrible thing if music were only, listen, were only appreciated and listened to by a few specialized composers? We know what a joy and beautiful uh, inspiration music is to people around the world. Well, it's exactly the same thing with mathematics. Mathematics is something that everyone deserves to be part of. And for the fulfillment of math itself, it really needs everybody, everybody's effort. Now, for a long time, it was was thought that that was impossible, mathematics at the frontier level, at the research level, was just too difficult for anybody without years of training to do. And so I don't believe that, and I think we're coming to see over recent years now that everybody can be involved. And in particular, we have lots of students now working with us on developing new mathematics and answering questions that have been mysteries since the foundation of the world. How how have you found that this actual uh, working with uh, students? I it it is. I will definitely agree that it's important that that students be involved in the world of research because math is fantastic, and the more people who understand it, the better. But how do you find the actual process of working with students instead of working with, say, a, another? A person who's already a PhD in mathematics. Do you, uh, is it 
harder since you have to bring them up or is it a bit easier since they don't have to deal with the uh, already preconceived notions from say their own research or the people that they've worked with already exactly right it's both harder and easier for exactly the reasons that you say they don't have all the technical training and knowledge but they're willing to think about things in a new way and you know i think in many fields of endeavor in mathematics in particular there's a tendency to rush into more complicated situations before you've really thought about the simple cases enough and the students are an encouragement to do that to really think about the basic simple questions which are really the most important ones can you think of an example of where you were working with a student and that student was uh, able to uh, bring a perspective to a problem that just never would have occurred if you were working with someone who had had more of that technical training already? Well, the soap bubble problem was an example. So there was this group I had a group of seven students that summer. Joel Foisey was in that group, whom I mentioned. It was actually a very distinguished group. Uh, there were a couple Rhodes Scholars in that group. And I think Foisey initially felt a bit out of his element. But he persisted in thinking about the problem from his own perspective. And he was the one that actually came up with the idea and it was, a, it was a simple idea. It wasn't a sophisticated idea. It, isn't, it wasn't the kind of idea that would necessarily come out of years of training or one where you would say, this is a technique that I picked up here or learned there. It was, it was, a, it was a, an original idea, and it, it was the key to solving that problem and proving what these planar soap bubbles look like. And then... The, there and then being ready to issue the challenge to the world of trying to solve the three-dimensional problem, a, a project which I was involved in for 10 years or so and which was a, a great adventure. Uh, what, what ended up being the solution for the three-dimensional version? Well, it turns out that the double bubble that you always get when two soap bubbles come together and you've seen that shape, you know, you have two bubbles, they come together, and they like to come together because then they can share the common wall between them. And that that shape, it turns out, is, as you would guess, the least area way to enclose and separate those two given volumes of air. But now we know that as a mathematical fact. You know, it was, it's, it was always possible that the shape that soap bubbles made was just the best ones they knew about, but maybe there was some better thing that neither we nor the soap bubbles had ever considered. Well, now we know that's impossible. We know that this shape they have is the best possible shape, and we know why it is. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm just getting a little stuck up on the idea of, of soap bubbles thinking about shapes there for a second. Uh <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, do, you, do you know this shape? Have you ever seen this thing when two bubbles come together? Here's yeah. a question for you. You have this shape when two bubbles come together. So there's maybe a big bubble... And it's, uh, it has this outside that's part of a sphere. And there's maybe a little bubble. And it has an outside part that's uh, part of a sphere. And then there's this surface between them. So here's the question. Is that surface between them, that soap film between them, that separates the two of them, is it flat? Or does it bow into the little bubble? Or does the little bubble push into the big bubble? Uh, 
I can honestly say that I've never thought about it. I would uh, think that it would be flat. Okay, flat. Good idea, right? Because you're thinking minimizing surface area. And therefore, you think that flat is sort of the least surface area you could have. But it turns out that it's not flat. It's funny, you know, you've seen lots of bubbles like this, but most people never notice. And it's pretty close to being flat if the two bubbles are about the same size, although if one's much smaller than the other, you can see that it definitely bows one way. So now you can guess again. Uh, I'll say bow into the smaller one. The big bubble pushes into the smaller bubble. And this is what, you know, and, and again, this is a, a natural expectation. So good for you because that big strong bubble ought to be able to push its way into the little bubble. But the fact of the matter is that it's the little bubble that pushes into the big bubble. Well, so I was uh, 0 for 2. Uh, so... Hard to guess these things, isn't yeah. it? It's hard to guess these things. It's kind of an economy of scale principle that the big bubble is more efficient and the little bubble wants to go in and borrow some of that space. But you can also think of it this way. There's more pressure in the little bubble. You know when you blow up a birthday party balloon, how it's very hard at the beginning when it's small and tightly curved, and then as it gets larger, it gets easier, the pressure goes down. You've blown up a birthday party balloon like that, yeah? Yes, very hard to get it started. Well, it's similarly uh, similar with these soap bubbles. The smaller, more tightly curved bubble has more pressure in it, and that causes it to bulge into the larger bubble, which has less pressure. That makes sense. And see, this is the great thing. You know, it's a it's a question which at first is like to is just totally confusing. You have no idea how to even think about it, and after you understand it. It's it's simple and beautiful. Now, uh, you you've clearly had a, a decent amount of practice uh, with with this talking about uh, soap bubbles in this way. So, would I be wrong in assuming that you've probably done this many times? You mean talks and interviews, so on? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. But I love talking about it. Right? It's a it's a great topic. But one of of of. Uh, Many topics that I love, uh, and there are so many, you know, there are so many interesting things in the world, and they all boil down to mathematics. So, uh, uh, you know what, here's, here's an interesting topic coming on. We have the World Series coming up next month, yeah? Yeah. So... And, and our, our majors here at Williams have to give undergraduate colloquia. Well, one came in. And I said, well, what kind of math would you like to talk about? What do you like, I said. And he said, I like baseball. Well, I'm not really a baseball fan, but I asked him this question. I said, what do you think is the fastest way to run around the bases? Now, you know, you could just follow the baseball diamond and go in that, but then you'd have those very sharp corners, and they would really slow you down. You'd have to come to a stop to make a corner that sharp. Yeah. Or, you know, you could go around in a circle, but then you have to go much farther. So his colloquium was he experimented and developed a certain model to figure out whether it would be faster to follow the baseline with the sharp corners or to go around in the big circle. And what do you think? I would think 
that I oh do I have to choose from one of those two? Well, that's the the easy start. Okay. Or you get, I, yeah. I I would think uh, going in a uh, circle would be more natural for a person who's running. Exactly, and you are absolutely right this time. Good for you. Yeah, Woo! according to his model, it was 22 seconds around the baseline and only 18 going in the circle. Uh, would would it then kind of behoove the runner to kind of make it a bit less of a circle to shave even more time off, go a little bit closer to the baseline while still keeping rounded edges so you don't have to make the sharp turns? Yes. And one of my colleagues, Stuart Johnson, was sitting in the audience at this colloquium. He said, I know how using mathematics to figure out the optimal path around the bases. And this turned into a paper that the three of us wrote together. And it's a very interesting solution. You start out at an angle of about 25 degrees to the right of the baseline. And it's, it's not a symmetric shape. You bulge out the most between uh, around the middle of the path. And after you round third, you make a much more straight beeline for home as you sprint across home base. Uh, were were you the least bit tempted to maybe not publish this result and instead, you know, try to sell it to some uh, rich baseball team instead? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that would have been a good idea. But, but no, we weren't tempted. <laughs> we, we, we just uh, love to share it, you know, so much and tell people about it. So um, I'm actually planning. It, it has been published, but I'm planning to feature this uh, shortly, when we get closer to the World Series in my blog at the Huffington Post, where I've been having a lot of fun. That's a that's a that's a great audience of people who who deserve to know a little more about mathematics. Uh, that and this is something that you do. You seem to be very interested in in say the the blogging. I mean, you have the Huffington Post blog. You help start up the. Uh, AMS graduate student blog. Uh, so what what about the idea of, of blogging, writing about mathematics for kind of a wider audience on the internet uh, drew you in so much? Well, I guess it's just that when you see, love and see the beauty of mathematics, you want to share it. And, you know, it's something you can do at all levels. There's always something you can say to everybody, and it's fun trying to figure out how you can share mathematics with, with, with anybody. It's fun with students. I love teaching. It's fun with, with kids. It's fun with the general public. I used to have a math chat TV show here at Williams College, and we had lots of students come, calling in all the time. It was a kind of a cult thing for, the while, for a while at the local high school. But what pleased me the most is I'd go to the grocery store and so on, and I'd find out that just ordinary people, adults, would, would love watching at home because they could do it you know, secretly. They wouldn't tell anybody, wouldn't call in because they were afraid of being embarrassed, but they loved just watching at home in the safety of their living rooms. What, what sort of format was a math TV show? Well, it was just a call-in show where anybody could call in with math questions and then people could call in with math answers. And at the beginning, you know, I tried to 
guide the show myself. I sort of had the perfect idea of what we could talk about, perfect topics. And I found I couldn't do that. You just have to go with the flow. And questions will come in that at first you don't think are going to go anywhere, and they become fascinating. Remember one little kid called in and he said, how many days are there in 60 years? Well, you know, this first this sounds like a little arithmetic problem. And one of his friends called in and said, we just take 60 and multiply by 365, and that gives you the number of days in 60 years. But then an older kid called in. He said, no, he said, that's not quite right. You forgot that every four years we have a leap year. So you have to add in a quarter. It was actually 6,000 years, the kid said. I remember now. He said, 6,000 years. It wasn't 60 years. 6,000 years. So he said, you have to add in a quarter of the 6,000 years. That would be 1,500 extra days because every four years we have a leap year. Yeah. And then somebody else called in and said, well, you know, actually, we don't have a leap year every four years. Did you know this? Yes. Sam? Yes, I did. Yeah. So what's the what's the rule? Oh, I, I do not entirely remember. There's a... Uh... I'd... Century years in general are not leap years. So 1900, for example, was not a leap year, maybe oh, okay. a century year. So someone else said, you've got to remember, the century years are not leap years. So we have to subtract off one year in 100. So now we've got to subtract off 60 years, 60 days in the 6,000 years. And then someone else called in and said, yes, but some century years are leap years. Every four centuries is a leap year. So 2000, for example, was a leap year. So we have to add back in the 15 days. So there finally was the right answer. It was getting kind of interesting <laughs> already. Uh, you know. And the calendar still isn't perfect, even with all those adjustments. Yeah, there was uh, a journalist in the UK by the name of Alex Bellos who wrote the math book, Here's Looking at Euclid, would be its name in the US. And he wrote a blog post about all of the rules and it was a rather long thing and then he suggested a different set of rules that made much more mathematical sense well kind of interesting you know so so actually if you look at the difference between the astronomical the so-called tropical year and the calendar year it's off a, a day every about uh, in about 3000 years that's uh, not too bad not too bad right so one might deduce from that that in 3,000 years we ought to skip a leap year. We ought to skip one of the leap days. But that would be a logical fallacy, which only a mathematically trained mind could realize what's, what's wrong in that assumption. All right? So the two calendars are off by this little error, which would amount to one day in 3,000 years. Therefore, in 3,000 years, we ought to skip a leap day. Um, I'm not, not coming up with it right now. Logical fallacy. It's a very common mistake that people make. They assume that the length of the year is constant, whereas the number of days in a year is actually changing all the time because the tropical year is getting shorter and the day, at least the seasonal year, is getting shorter and the day is getting longer. Did you know those things? I knew that there was something to do with the day getting longer. I believe that's what the leap second is used for. Correct? Exactly. Yes, exactly right. Yes. So a billion years ago, we had an 18 hour day. In 1900, we standardized the length of the day and, and defined the, the second as a, as a certain fraction of the day. And now 
the day's a bit longer. So we have to stick in an extra second every once in a while, that so-called leap second. So the, the year is now about, uh, uh, the day is now about 24 hours long. You know how long it's going to be eventually? Uh, no, no, I do not. I haven't read anything about that. Well, it's headed towards getting in sync with something else. The day is headed towards being a month long. That's really going to mess up my sleep schedule. <laughs> well, don't worry. It's not going to happen for a while. Oh. The day Woo! will be... The day and the day is headed towards being a month long because the thing that's slowing the the day down are the tides rubbing against the earth, and they're in sync with the moon, and so this effect will persist until the day is in sync with the moon. Once again, it, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, so I was I was wondering I was I was trying trying to get to this a little bit earlier, but we uh, spun off on other fascinating conversations. I you. Another thing that you do, I mean, beyond just the working with students and the blogging and, and, and the research and everything else, which it seems like plenty, you also give a lot of talks, uh, including yeah. recently you went on a speaking tour of Asia, which was something like six countries, eight talk, uh, eight weeks and 41 talks. That's right. It was quite an adventure. It all came out of another international conference I attended in Korea before that, and I met with presidents of the math associations of many of these developing countries. And it was so exciting, the prospect and the potential for the development of math in, in, in a number of these Asian countries. But right now, the, the infrastructure and the support is holding them back a little bit. And it's even hard for them to get lots of speakers coming through. So, so I offered to, to come through and do this as long as they'd take care of me while I was there. And, and that's true. I went to a number of countries from Pakistan. I was in Pakistan, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And it was really wonderful to see the growing love of mathematics in these countries when I traveled there. All very different, it was, but all very exciting. So like, what, what are your kind of go-to talks when you've when you go on a tour like that? Oh, well, you know, it was up to them what they wanted to hear about. So, and, I, and I talked at all different levels from, from school kids up through advanced research seminars. The mathematicians would want to know about what are good research topics and things that they could be working on. And but the the public loves to hear about mathematics, and so I also, you know, I give talks talks about soap bubbles and about tilings. Uh, there's a lot of interest in how to teach mathematics, so I gave talks about teaching mathematics. So I'd say of the 41 talks, there were probably 15 different models, 15 different talks, and most of the talks were some version or another of those 15 talks. Well. Professor Morgan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, Sam, this is great, and I, I'm very grateful to you for what you're doing to, to let people in on the secret of what fun it can be to know a little bit more about mathematics. And so I hope I'll, 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 I'm, hope I'm making new friends today, and I'll, I'll see some of them at, at, at my Huffington Post blog, for example, where they... Where, they, where I get a, a, a very interesting variety of comments and questions.
And that is all the time we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to find out more about the guest, Frank Morgan, or find previous shows, you can head on over to acmescience.com. And if you have any feedback or you want to suggest a guest for Strongly Connected Components, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. That's my real personal email address, you know, the same one that my family sends emails to. So why not join my family and send me an email? Also, I want to tell you about the show Relatively Prime. You might remember the Kickstarter campaign ran about a year ago. Well, the shows are now coming out. You can find them over at relprime.com. If people have been saying great things, I think they're fantastic. You should really check them out. This show, as always, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike license. So if you want to remix it, please do. And the music was provided by Hard and Firm for the intro and SP12 for the music I'm talking over right now. And as always, I want to thank all of you for tuning into the show. And I really do hope that you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. And until then, I'll see you over at acmescience.com where there is a ton of other shows and content that uh, you can while away the hours between episodes consuming and stuff. Bye!